y'all. I don't have a random and interesting dog fact for you, but I have a little training story. Chai and I went shopping today and she did really well being off-leash in the streets. I'm very, very proud of her. Well, let's dive right in. Today I'm just going to answer a few student questions. Thank you all for sending those my way. They are always fun to answer and they're so good. Question number one. What's the best way to increase difficulty after teaching a behavior to my dog? That is an excellent question. I think of it in terms of three knobs that you can turn. Environment, arousal level, distractions or lack of distractions, and your dog's freedom. For the best results and for maximum generalization with little or no mistakes, You'll want to turn only one of those knobs at a time, and then you want to combine them. Let me explain, for example, what I mean when I say environment. I like to think of levels of difficulty in terms of three. So we have easy, intermediate, and advanced. In terms of the environment, easy could be inside your house. Intermediate could be in your yard or your dog's familiar training building or training field. And difficult could be out in the real world. You can also have more levels or less levels or different levels. It really depends on where you live and what kinds of stuff you and your dog like to do. This will look different for a pet dog and a performance dog. It will look different for a dog living in Europe and a dog living in Latin America. The next knob that I think of is arousal level. Again, I like to think of three levels of arousal. I could have a calm dog, a moderately aroused dog, and a highly aroused dog. When I say arousal, what I mean is just the excitement of the dog. It's neither good nor bad. For example, a ball chunky will be highly aroused when you play ball with them. That's not bad arousal. That's just high arousal. Imagine your dog and think about what puts them into the respective arousal states. Calm, moderate, and high. Chewing a cum, running, lack of exercise, lots of exercise toy play, wind in your dog's coat, being wet, anything after 9 p.m., a certain location. Once you have thought about these different ways of modifying arousal based on external factors, think about what arousal level the behavior you are currently working on is the easiest and at what arousal level it is the hardest. This is different for every dog. A calm behavior, such as stationing on a mat and relaxing on a mat, is probably easiest in a calm state of arousal. But certain exercises and bite work are probably easiest in a high state of arousal. So it really depends what you're working on and also who your dog is. Some dogs are really calm. Their baseline personality is just very, very mellow. For those dogs, maybe you want a high level of arousal for most behaviors you train because you want them to come running rather than walking when you call them. On the other hand, there are dogs who are bouncing off the walls. For those dogs, maybe you want a calm arousal state for most behaviors when you're first training them because they already come running, even when they're in their calm state of mind. While the moment they enter a moderate state of arousal, it may be hard for them to think. The next knob I imagine is distraction. This is related to the knob of environment, but it's not the same. 
For example, your house is probably generally a low or no distraction environment. But if you train during some holiday when your entire family is visiting and there are kids running around, there are really good smells coming out of the kitchen, there are lots of people, maybe someone else brought their dog, then you're still in your house, but the distraction level is probably high. At the same time, being out in the real world at the busiest time of day is probably a high distraction setting for your dog. There are people, there are cars, there are bikes, there are dogs being walked, there is urban wildlife everywhere. On the other hand, if you go out into the same space in the middle of the night, there may be nothing going on. The same environment may turn into a low distraction space. You can also use distractions strategically. For example, you can place food distractions in specific locations and train around them, or toy distractions, or another dog, or another person. You can ask someone to try and distract your dog. And of course, as we have said for environment and arousal, what is distraction to your dog really depends on the individual dog that you have. Some dogs will get really distracted when they see a cat. Other dogs could care less. Some dogs care about toys and will try and do anything to get to a toy, while others will not even notice a toy. So again, it depends on who your dog is. Ask yourself that question before thinking about where to best set the distraction knob for whatever it is you are working on. Our final knob is freedom. Generally, less freedom gives you more control, and more freedom gives you less control over your dog. If you have your dog on a leash, you have more control than if your dog is off-leash. If you have your dog on a leash and you practice leave it, you can use that leash to stop the dog from getting to the distraction, even if they do not respond to your leave-it cue. If your dog is off-leash and you use a leave-it cue and the dog goes for the distraction, you can't stop them. So freedom is another knob you can turn and you want to start with less freedom and then slowly increase to more and more freedom for your dog. The same goes for recalls. If you have your dog on a long line and you call them, if the environment is difficult or there are lots of distractions around, your dog may want to go somewhere else, but you have a long line and you can just stop them. On the other hand, if they were off-leash, they could take off. There are also different intermediate steps you can take between being on a long line and being off-leash. You could either go from holding the long line to letting the long line drag to taking it off, or you could have a long line on your dog and then cut off a couple inches every time you train. And if your dog is successful, cut off a couple more inches the next time after. This works really well for dogs who are long line smart. That is dogs who know, oh, I'm wearing a long line. I better come back because I won't get to the distraction anyways. They can tell the distinction between that and being off leash. And when they're off leash, they will just do what they want. If you have a dog like this, cutting off the long line little by little can be really helpful. Another way of increasing or decreasing freedom would be working in an enclosed space or working in an open space. For example, your yard versus outside your yard. In your yard, there's only so far your dog can go. Let's assume it's a fenced yard, right? But on the other side of your fence, there's the entire world for them to disappear into. My rule of thumb, in any case, is for those four knobs that you can turn in terms of making a behavior a little harder and working on generalization and proofing, environment, arousal, distraction, and freedom, turn one knob at a time and then start combining them. If you work out the different combinations for your specific dog and the particular behavior you're training, and then you strategically work through all these combinations, you will end up with a well-generalized behavior.
second question of the day. Also a good one, and one that I know many people struggle with. It really doesn't matter if you have a pet dog or a sports dog. You will run into this sooner or later. Question. My dog used to be able to be off-leash and always come when called, and now he ignores me. He's eight months old. At eight months, you have a juvenile dog. It really doesn't matter if your dog is spayed or neutered or not, or if they're male or female. The performance often drops at some point between four months and a year, depending on your dog. They enter the juvenile phase. I picture that as their brain just being under construction. And certain areas of the brain that used to work perfectly fine in puppyhood are closed for business on certain days or for weeks or sometimes even for a month or more. There's no need to train through weird adolescent times. Just let the dog be and keep them safe. Wait until you're on the other side of the brain adjusting to its new normal hormonal reality and then you'll have a dog with a brain again. Most of my own dogs have had little to no pronounced teenage changes, except for an off day here or there, but one of them did have a big change. I saw it, I put her back on a long line, no more off-leash privileges, for about two months, and during that time I just didn't worry about trying to call her at all. And then after that time passed, I had a more adult dog, and her brain was able to recall what a recall was. She just picked back up where we had left off, and I had that wonderful puppy recall back. It's often much easier to simply protect your behavior, in this example the recall, by means of keeping your dog in a long line, rather than trying to train through it, or losing your dog, repeatedly getting upset, and calling them, and they don't come, and your recall gets weaker. Instead, just put a long line on your dog, don't call them, wait for the juvenile period to pass, and then they will likely be back to normal. And if this happens to you and you get frustrated at your dog, just think back to your own teenage years. If I think back to mine, those were certainly crazier than any of my dogs have ever been at any stage in their lives. I was one of the most difficult and recklessly rebellious teenagers I have ever met. But I survived, and today I am a fully functional adult most of the time. Your adolescent dog will be as well. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And if you're enjoying this podcast, leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. I really appreciate those. And they help get the podcast out and about in the world. Happy training, and I'll be back in a month.